Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You probably heard of the Financial Samurai or maybe even read some of the Financial Samurai articles. 90 million people have done so over the past 10 plus years. But you're going to get to hear from the real life Financial Samurai today, right here on the show. Sam Dogan, back in 2009, saw his own net worth take a big hit. And then he decided to start a personal finance site or blog to help himself and others make sense of all the financial chaos. That's when he came up with the name Financial Samurai. He went to William and Mary, got an MBA from UC Berkeley, and then he spent 13 years working at Goldman Sachs and Credit Suisse. But in 2012, he retired from banking to really travel the world. At least he thought he was going to just travel the world, at least for a while. And then also helping others fight against financial turmoil. In 2022, he just launched his newest book, Buy This, Not That, How to Spend Your Way to Wealth and Freedom, which I think you're going to love. In fact, one of my favorite parts of the interview, he's going to give us the average time a parent should be spending with their kids. And because of his financial freedom, he's able to go way beyond the average in any given day with his kids. Something that sounds pretty great as a dad of four. Today's interview is filled with very real life, very practical strategies on how to create better income streams, how to weigh the probability of investment decisions, and above all, live a life as close to financial freedom as possible. And we're hearing this from Sam Dogan, the financial samurai who started this journey in his mid-30s. We can learn a lot, and I hope you will, straight ahead. I'm Wes Moss. The prevailing thought in America is that you'll never have enough money, and it's almost impossible to retire early. Actually, I think the opposite is true. For more than 20 years, I've been researching, studying, and advising American families, including those who started late, on how to retire sooner and happier. So my mission with the Retire Sooner podcast is to help a million people retire earlier while enjoying the adventure along the way. I'd love for you to be one of them. Let's get started. Well, listen, I'm going to just jump right into this, Sam. And um, I would say, first of all, I, it feels like I know you. I'm like, hey, man, what's up, Sam? How you doing? How's it going? So let me just get started here. Sam, Is uh, you have one of these, I feel like on a, any podcaster that's having you on, any sort of financial show, you're a legend in, mm, in our really? world. You Is are a right? legend. Y- yes, <laughs> you are. I have, I have no idea. <laughs> you are a legend in the financial planning or retire early, retire sooner, fire movement. And I remember reading about you so long ago. I mean, I've been reading your stuff for, I mean, you started Financial Samurai back in 09. So I guess I started reading in 09. It, it was really? 09. And I, I started reading your stuff. Wow. And I I thought to myself, one day I want to be able to do something similar to what this, mm. this guy Sam is doing. And now here we are, 15 years later and I'm, I'm able to interview you. So I, I, your work is probably, you've probably helped millions of people. I don't know how many, if you, you're keeping count, but you've, I know you've had millions of readers. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's been a long journey, right? 13 years started financial samurai, the bottom of the global financial crisis, July, 2009, I think about 90 plus million people have come and it's just kind of crazy uh, to think about it in that regard. Uh, but it's been a great journey. You've had 90 million visitors on your website. Is that? I think, I, I think, yeah, since 2009. Wow. That's pretty cool. That's a bit, it's actually, it's phenomenal. But so I want to do a couple of things. I mean, again, you've, you've got one of these really relatable, but extreme stories. It's what you did is kind of extreme mm. retiring super young and you were able to do so. And it also is something that so many people would love to do. And then now you're in kind of a new phase. You've done this now for the better part of a decade and almost a half. So maybe mm-hmm. let's just start. I know a lot of people may, might know at least the, the beginnings of your story, but in your words, I'd love to hear what was going through your mind in the great financial crisis and then you being able to essentially 
semi gray zone, whatever you want to call it, retire super early. Tell that story. Well, I would say 10 years ago, 10 years ago was 2012. And I was just sick of work. I had been working in finance for 13 years, just gone through the global financial crisis, lost about 35% of my net worth in a matter of six months that took 10 years of diligent saving and investing to accumulate and create. And I just didn't like finance anymore. We were the bad guys. I wanted to do something new. And I had started Financial Samurai during the crisis in 2009, three years before I left finance completely. And I found myself always just wanting to write. I would wake up at 6 a.m. I would do some writing before going to work. I'd come back and I'd do more writing because it was so fun to connect with other people who were going through similar issues. And it just felt like almost like an addiction where that's all I wanted to do. And eventually I was thinking to myself, you know what, this is probably not healthy. Always thinking about financial samurai when I'm working. So I wanted to figure out a way out. And I figured out that way by negotiating a severance because I had learned during the global financial crisis, a lot of my friends got severances and I was always asking them, are you guys okay? Do you need a job? And they said, we're actually okay because we got two to three weeks worth of pay per year work. I was like, oh. Two to three weeks per year worked. Okay. And again, so can you back up for just a second and you're saying you're in finance and there's a lot of different pieces and there's a lot of different slices to the financial advice pie, investment Mm -hmm. banking, financial planning, insurance. What side were you on? You're a banker. Can you describe what that was like? I was in institutional equities. Yeah. So tell our audience what that means. What were you actually doing every day? Our goal was to raise, help companies go public. And we were at the final stage of that. So we would bring private companies public and bring them around, meet with uh, institutional investors, active managers, hedge fund managers, and also um, uh, those uh, like BlackRock and all that basically index managers who would try to um, build positions around various indices. And so, and it was also a commission-based business, institutional sales and trading. So equities, corporate finance, private wealth management, those were the three big pillars of uh, banking. And how much of a grind is that? So we hear about investment banking, we hear about anything institutional, whether it's fixed income or equities, it's how much were you working? Well, while I was in New York, I would get in at 5.30 in the morning and then I would leave 7.30, sometimes 9 o'clock at night, because I had to connect with my colleagues in Asia who were just getting in. And so I worked in international equities. And so it was 24-7 if I wanted to, but I didn't want to. So eventually I had to cut it off. But it was regularly 60 plus hours a week. You know, again, there's an HBO series out now called Industry. Mm. And it's one of the first, I would say, really hard looks at younger people in the financial industry. And it's this Mm. big time bank. It probably is like a a Goldman Sachs type bank in Europe or in London. And, you know, Mm -hmm. they just work all the time. And I I wonder, is that, I guess that's part of what happened with you. Do they expect just a a huge amount of people that are not going to continue to do that? Because it's just not sustainable for like 90% Mm. of people. Is it just the reward can be so great that some people stay? It's just not sustainable, right? Um, I think there's just an upper out uh, mentality. So if you want to make it to VP, to director, to partner, you're going to have to grind it out and you're going to have to continue those 60, 70 hour work weeks and produce. You eat what you kill. If you're not doing well with your clients, um, you're not going to get paid and you might get pushed out or you'll just kind of be stuck in purgatory. So the people who join these industries, I mean, we, I liked to invest in the stock market. I started investing in the stock market in college and I found it to be quite uh, attractive and addicting really. So I said, well, why not make a career out of it? But as soon as you start making a career out of it, there's just different pulls and pushes that you have to go through. And a lot of it has to do with um, you know corporate politics and you know being on the right side of your clients and so forth. And it just becomes a grind after a while. So it was a grind and you did this and you were probably making good money, but it was still earlier in your career. So. Mm. At what point did you start to say, I'm going to, so you're writing for Financial Samurai, and I guess that's when I started reading it. So I I was reading it while you were still working back in 09, right? right? right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you got a, a severance opportunity. 
Mm-hmm. And and then that was the prompt to say, I'm going to stop working now. And did you think it was going to be for how long? Or were you, were you going to try to be retired forever? Or did you know you were going to go back at some point? And I want to talk about your thought around, you call yourself a fake retiree or fake yeah. retired. What were you thinking back when you took the plunge? Well, I was thinking, man, I'm burned out and I didn't enjoy my life, my lifestyle anymore. So I needed to find a way out instead of just complain at the water cooler every single morning to my colleagues, you know, why work sucked, right? And so I devised the plan to negotiate a severance. And I knew that if I could get all my deferred cash and stock compensation over the past three years, plus this private investment management forced us to invest in in 2010, I was good to go. And if I could get a severance check, then there was no reason at the age of 34 not to take that leap of faith. I was burned out and I needed a break. And also I wanted to write. I wanted to travel the world and write on Financial Samurai on the deck of a nice boat or somewhere somewhere in Mallorca, Spain. And so that's what I ended up doing uh, for 2012 and 2013. Traveled to 20 countries, visited too many churches and just had a good time. Uh, But after about a year, I decided, you know what, this is kind of getting boring. After you Mm -hmm. see five Gothic churches in Europe, you've seen them all. And I had lived overseas uh, for 13 years of my life in Asia, and I had um, worked in international equities for 13 years. So I'd gone to China, India, and it was so exhilarating, so fun to go to these conferences. So after about a year, I said, you know what, I'm not going to be considering myself uh, early retiree anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to say I'm a writer. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I've, I've been doing ever since. And I want to embrace that term fake retirement, introduce it to the world because there's a lot, there's been a lot of criticism um, regarding my retirement situation or other people who have retired. Like some people have working spouses, but they say they're retired, all this stuff. And I said, yes, fake retirement. I'm a fake retiree. I'm just doing what I want. Uh, so that's it. Well, when you went and took that break at age 34 for a year, really, yeah. were you making income yet during that period yeah. of time from Financial Samurai? So it was, it was, it was a lot or is it just a little bit to supplement? I mean, so mainly um, I had my severance package that paid for about five years of living expenses as frugal living expenses. But that was just, you know, I could live in San Francisco by myself wow. for on that severance package, 67,000. Yeah. yeah. Five years. And then I did have about $80,000 a year in passive investment income. So rental property income, CD income, money market, bond income, dividend income. Those are the main factors. And so I knew, look, with the severance and the passive income of 80000 it's like, let's get out of here and let's just try to do something I wanted to do. Because worst case, I would just go back to work after one or two years if things didn't work out. And also my wife, who was three years younger than me, uh, was also working. And I told her, look, if things work out over the next three years, when you are 34, you too can leave your job and I'll help you negotiate a severance so we can live this life together. And so that's what happened. Things worked out. When did you get married? Uh, 2008 during the yeah global financial crisis. Okay. So you were married during this period of time. Yeah. And so your wife traveled with you or did she stay? So she when took did she- uh, five, six weeks off that year. In 2012, 2013, yeah. How long did it take you to build up, Sam, the the passive income, that $80,000 worth of passive income? And is that still going strong today? Is it, is it more today? Is it yeah. less? So it took 13 years. I was very diligent, very intentional. In, two, in 1999, when I first started working at Goldman Sachs, I said, I can't last more than 18, 20 years in this business, getting in at 530, leaving at 730. I needed to save and invest as much as possible so that hopefully by the time I was age 40, I'd have enough money to have options to do something else. And so I've always had this mentality. And that's one of the best things about having a difficult job is that it forces you to think of alternatives because you know you can't last. Yeah, that's a really good point. When you know you're maxed out, particularly in in any sort of investment bank, your institutional equities, it really is about as grinding as you can get. I mean, 530 to nine, do you do that one day and, and most people are burned out? You had to do yeah. it for, you did it for years, Yeah, but well, you also for, knew that you were going to, the, the, the reward was that you would maybe be able to get out and have a much, well, what's your schedule like now? 
Well, I have two questions. What's your schedule like now? And then when you were traveling that first year, was it, you were such a unique position to be 34 and doing that. Was it lonely? Was it weird for a little while? So two questions, the schedule and the traveling. Uh, the schedule now is I wake up by 5, 5.30 in the morning um, and I do some writing from about 6, 6.30 to 8, 8.30. And I try to do my writing, which is it's kind of like meditation and it's kind of like therapy and it's kind of something like exercise. And I try to do it all before the kids wake up because once the little ones are up, there's no focusing on the writing. It's, it's about playing with them and being with them. How old are the kids, by the way, Sam? Five and a half and two and a half. Okay, so still not in, your five and a half is still, wait, wait, what, kindergarten? Kindergarten this fall. Okay. And two and a half, not sleeping well, but fingers crossed you will. Um, But, you know, the whole goal is to try to spend as much time with them as possible until full-time school starts. And so the day is um, do some writing, spend time with the children, try to outperform the average amount of time, the typical parent spends with the child in America, which is 120 minutes. So I try to do 200 to 300 minutes a day and try to play some tennis late at late morning, have some lunch and then take a nap while the little one uh, is also taking a nap. I'd never heard that stat before, Sam. I, yeah. lo- I really like that. Is it that. So the average per day is 120 minutes? For a college educated parent in America is 120 minutes. It's a, a little day. bit less for, for debt. Yeah, day. And so there's a lot of what's interesting is that the work life balance for a parent is really difficult. And so there's a lot of guilt involved in parenthood. And, you know, should we work for more money to take care of our kids or should we spend more time with our kids? And one of the things that I found that I've written in my book by this, not that, is that if you want to get rid of your guilt of working instead of spending time with your children, try to spend at least the average amount of time per day a parent in America spends with their child, which is 120 minutes. And so if you can get to, let's say, 200 minutes, so three hours plus, that guilt starts to go away because everything at the end of the day is relative. And then one day your kids will grow up and not want to spend time with you at all. (laughs) uh, Listen, I've got four little kids. (laughs) They're not little anymore. I I guess I got in the habit of saying that over the years, but my oldest is 15, then I have a 12 out of 10 and a six. And the... um, I'm thinking this is a terrible question. I'll probably get hate mail for this. What counts as time with the kids, Sam? <laughs> uh, like, is this uh, active or, or you playing football in the yard? Is it hanging out watching movies? Is it just all the above when you're actually with your with your children? I mean, obviously, there's like a scale or a spectrum, but I would say just intentional one-on-one or two-on-one time with the kids playing at the playground for us kicking the soccer ball What around. if you have four, man? I can't do yeah. two, four, two hours yeah. a day per kid. That's eight hours a day. Yeah. So you got to, <laughs> you got to bunch them like two on one or three on one. I mean, yeah. it's up to every single parent. Yeah, we do. I mean, yeah. if, if it's a two hour drive to Lake Tahoe, you know, that probably doesn't count as two hours, you know, unless you're like talking to them for two hours. Oh, right? I think that counts. I was just thinking, <laughs> I was just picking, I just I picked up so. my 12 uh, year old from football And it's a good with, with depending on Atlanta traffic, you've got, you know, it's a 30 minute ride, but that's pretty, that's pretty fun time because it's like, Hey, what'd you guys do in football? What did you you play? Conversation. Yeah. 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 I I guess I try to, so it's my 15 year old maybe doesn't want to talk, but I, my three younger kids are still in a very talkative Mm -hmm. phase where they're like, Hey, this is what happened. Yeah. Like, what did you, why is there blood on your football pants? Is that from <laughs> you? No, I accidentally hit my hand went through the helmet oh, and wow. I accidentally hit Henry's nose and <laughs> it was bloody and that's actually his blood. And then he targeted me for the rest of practice because wow. he was mad. At me. <laughs> okay. That counts then. Okay. That counts. Okay. That counts. But the five hour flight to Hawaii. Maybe, Where they're maybe, on their may- iPad and with yeah. headphones. That maybe count. that's like 20% of the time that counts. <laughs> I love this as a parent the thought around this is that the intentionality around spending at least the average or more, and you're able to do more, which is a, is a really kind of a blessing to be a fake retiree. Hey y'all, it's Mallory Boggs, the producer for the Retire Sooner podcast. From an investment standpoint, the world is changing. We've gone from no inflation to hyperinflation, zero interest rates to much higher interest rates. All of this changes the dynamics for stocks and bonds. So the question for you, are your retirement accounts ready for it? Have you adapted your investments for these major shifts? Do you know what kind of income your 401k account is gonna pay you in retirement? 
If not, maybe it's time for a new perspective. The Retire Sooner team is here to help. If you're ready to talk, reach out to our team and we'll help you take a closer look at how you can generate income in retirement and protect yourself from inflation. We'd love to hear from you. Again, find us at westmoss.com. That's W-E-S-M-O-S-S dot com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, let's go through some of that. You've got six lessons that you learned through early retirement. Let's go through those about the, there's no shame in being fake retired. Your financial needs are going to evolve. But let's go through those six for folks as we aspire to, to be in a similar position to you. So many of our audience. Okay. Why don't you kick it off with the first one that you're talking about? Yeah. So again, is there this... And I've never come up with the perfect name here. And this is, I think this is why I was like, oh, I got to get Sam on Retire Senior Podcast is that you called fake retired. I called it retirement gray zone where you kind of have enough to retire, but maybe not completely enough to have no income. I did an interview with the author of Second Act Career. She calls mm. it semi, semi retired, which is a pretty good word. I've never come <laughs> up with the perfect word, but there's also this worry that is there any shame in it? Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't think there's shame in doing what you want to do. And I would say, don't let anybody tell you otherwise. And one of the privileges of being able to run Financial Samurai is having so many people read my work and offering their two cents and perspectives. And I actually love the perspectives from everyone, from all races, all countries, and different parts of the country. And it just elucidates a lot of the blind spots that I have and then I think other people have. Uh, it's one of the best ways to learn to listen to other people. And so some of the times, you know, there's criticism, which I do welcome because it highlights something that I might be doing wrong. And I would say there's never any shame in doing your best, taking risks and living the lifestyle that's true to yourself. And for those people who are trying to shame you into doing something or else, they're trying to work on their own system. I mean, there's something going on with themselves that, uh, you know, we need to recognize. What's an example of that? I mean, what's the criticism? I mean, is it like, hey, oh, easy for you to say you were at Goldman Sachs. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. is that part of it that you were able to make so much money so quickly? Or what is yeah. the common criticism? I would say, sure, that definitely could be one of them. Um, you know, they could say you worked at Goldman Sachs and Credit Suisse. And then I can say, yes. I got very lucky in getting those jobs after graduating from a state school and not being um, a target school. You know, I was able to get on a bus at 6 a.m. on a Saturday morning when nobody else was willing to get on that bus. And then they switched buses because it was just me. And the driver drove me in a black Lincoln town car to New York City. I went through 55 interviews over six rounds in seven months, and I found that job. And I would say that's 70, 80 percent luck, but it's 20, 30 percent showing up and trying to do your best. And so what I say is you have to have this positive mindset. You know, you I could say, look, I came to America as a high school student. I was a minority. I am a minority. Only 6% of people look like me in the United States. Um, maybe I don't get that same fair shake or that same opportunity because it's just the way it is. People like to take care of people who are like themselves. Or I can say, you know what? I have a great opportunity to come to the United States and make my own dreams. And look, there's trillions of dollars out there for the taking. There are people making millions of dollars playing sports, driving their companies into the ground and getting $10 million severance packages. Adam Newman just raised $350 million from Andreessen Horowitz after WeWork lost like billions and billions of dollars. My mindset is, why can't I be rich too? Why can't I live the life that I want if I work hard at it? You know, this gets to kind of number two for you. I think one of my early criticisms of FIRE and super early retirees was that, hey, like these people are 35 or 40, try having kids and putting them through mm -hmm. school and multiple kids. And I remember yeah. my early criticism of the FIRE movement, financial independence retire early, is that 
sure, you can live super frugally and at a really early age, but it's almost, once you start having a family, it does almost, it's expensive to live in the big city. It's expensive to live in America. So that was Mm -hmm. one of my issues with fire. But again, fire is a concept. It's not a black and white. So let's talk about number two for you. Financial needs evolve. And and I like this, likely grow over time. Also, the sooner you quit your day job, uh, maybe maybe you'll realize um, sooner or later that your needs will evolve, right? So I left at 34. I was married, but we have no children. Uh, we wanted children, but they didn't come for uh, a while. Um, but once we had our first son in 2017, something within me said, wow, I think I need to make more money to take care of them in expensive San Francisco, you know, there is healthcare insurance that we don't get subsidies for. We pay now about 2300 a month in unsubsidized healthcare insurance. Um, preschool is generally private unless you're from low income housing. And so that costs 2000 to 3000 a month here in San Francisco. And so the evolution of our passive income figure just kept on going up. It went from 80000 just me to 150000 for both of us because we, we believed in equality once she left her day job. So let's say, hey, let's add another 50,000 for our son who was born, you know, 50,000 after taxes is 35, 40,000. And then once our daughter was born in 2019, why not add another 50,000? Because heck, tuition costs are sure not going down. They're just going to go up, up and up. And so we kept an open mind to see that our passive income wasn't enough and it would evolve with the additions of our family and additions of our desires and needs as well. Okay, so did your so your wife did she ever stop working at all? She stopped working in 2015 at age 34, 35. So it was our agreement. I could go first and then once she, you know, reached 34, 35, she too could leave her job as well. And then does she write now too or what is she what is she currently doing? She writes maybe one out of every 80 articles. Uh, but she helps me edit. Uh, she files the taxes, make sure, you know, stuff like that. And then and she spends so much time taking care of our children. You know, right now she's the night watchwoman because uh, our little one is waking up several times a night. And she's just amazing in terms of taking care of our children and also doing a lot of the back end with Financial Samurai because there's all this stuff that comes comes when you have this little business that we have. And we never thought about it as a little business. We just thought about it. I thought about it as like a journal, as somewhere I could, you know, just write my thoughts and share my ideas and just help people, anybody who cared. Well, okay. When you're saying, Sam, that you ended up saying, hey, we need another 50 in income, where is that from what? When you say, hey, we've got to maybe increase our spending because tuition, where does that then come from? So it comes from the cost of raising a child, tuition, and added healthcare uh, expenses. And it was just our target number, 50,000 in gross income, extra passive income. Let's go try it. Okay. So you're saying let's continue to double down on the business to increase our overall income per year. So that's, that's the. Yeah. So originally we had a target of, you know, a hundred thousand dollars in passive income for the both of us. And we got there and we're like, oh, okay. It seems okay. Let's, let's shoot for 150. And then we had a, for the longest time, a target of 200 uh, to have a family. Um, but as you know, inflation, housing costs, everything have gone up tremendously over the past two years in particular. So we said, well, we better keep up with inflation at least. But now we're good. We are good. We found our passive income target. We're unable to have any more kids now, probably in our 40s. So we've come to a steady state and we found our for- forever home, uh, which we probably will not be forever, but probably live in for the next 10 years. And so we've and been able still to stabilize. Sa- are you, you're still in San Francisco? So we're still in San Francisco, which is the one number one or two most expensive city in America. Yeah. So if we were ever, ever able to decide to leave, we might go to Honolulu, for example, which is expensive, but it's about 30% cheaper than San Francisco. So <laughs> That's actually a cool stat. <laughs> the fact yeah. that going to Hawaii, which is like, you know, $10 a gallon and $6 for an egg to think that that's cheaper <laughs> than San Francisco. How about this one, which I, this is a really compelling one of your six, which is you're going to still feel the pull of traditional work. Mm -hmm. So I felt the pull of traditional work three times. Uh, The first time was 
immediately after I negotiated a severance and left. And I thought, am I an idiot? I'm 34 years old. I give up. Uh, what was my base salary at the time? 200,000. I don't know what it was. It was something like that. Yeah, I, I know what it was. It was, 200, was 250,000, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, wow, that's crazy. My friends are all still working all day. I couldn't find anybody to play tennis with at 11 a.m. Uh, maybe this is a mistake, right? So that was sure. One. Yeah. The second pool was in 2017 when my son was born. I think there must be some kind of DNA evolutionary thing that goes on in every single parent. Once they have a child, they say, you know what? I'm going to quit my bad habits. I'm going to try to make more money and I'm going to be a better parent. Provider. Provider, right? We got to provide. No matter how much you got or how much you think you have enough, you got to provide. And so I went through that. And then about a year into the pandemic was my third pool going back to work. So that was 2021. And I realized, wow, every time I go to the beach on a sunny day, it is packed on a weekday. And wow, when I go to my club or a public park to play tennis at 10 a.m., 11 a.m. on a nice day, it is packed now. It wasn't packed before. And so what I realized was uh, many of my friends who were in the knowledge economy were able to have this flexible lifestyle working from home during the pandemic. So I thought to myself, heck, if I can go back to work, get a nice paycheck and subsidize healthcare and not have to work that hard, oh, sign me up, <laughs> you know? Wait, so wait, say that again. So you've got, all, you've got folks in the knowledge economy, which is, again, you're in the, I guess a lot of us are in the knowledge economy. We're in a mm-hmm. services economy in general. Providing mm-hmm. advice is a huge part of the American economy. What did that prompt you to do again, Sam? So I realized, let's say you're working in tech, banking, just a lot of these jobs, you can work from home. Um, every time I went out to play, the courts were packed, the beaches were packed during the weekdays. Mm-hmm. And so what I realized was that if you could get paid working from home, not really working while you're supposed to be working from home, okay, I see. might as well try <laughs> to get a job working from home so you can go to the beach and play tennis, you know? Because <laughs> I mean, I just saw it with my eyes, the pre-pandemic and post-pandemic, um, you know, flexibility yeah Yeah. it was like oh well i was living this life but i wasn't getting paid so i might as well try to get a job and get paid and have a flexible life but but that was the pull of traditional work it didn't mean you didn't mean you did it i didn't do it because at the end of the day i realized after 10 years well nine years at the time of not having to report to anybody um i just didn't want to be beholden to anybody and so right now you know, I'm on this this media tour because I just came out with my book, Buy This, Not That, on July 19th. Like, just for this interview, for example, I had to set my alarm at 10 minutes beforehand because I cannot see any of the pop-up reminders that come up on my phone or a laptop. I'm so not used to it that it just disappears. And then, 10, and then five minutes before this interview, I actually forgot I had this interview, even though I had a 10-minute alarm clock reminding me that there was this interview. So in other words, I'm so not used to being on a schedule, on anybody's schedule, wow, that it, okay. it just felt so, I'm like terrible at that, that um, I was just like, man, I just can't be on schedules anymore. I can't imagine waking up. So the media tour is reminding you what it would be like if you had to answer to a, a direct a managing director somewhere and you were constantly yeah. having to check in. Yeah, just to schedule. It creates this anxiety where I'm like, Okay, one, I have to remember I have a meeting. And then two, oh, I've actually got to say something uh, insightful <laughs> during this conversation. <laughs> and, and, I, and I have to like push off things like, you know, I can't take my daughter to the playground at 1130 a.m. for some. So it, it, it reminds me that time is so valuable and you've got to be really intent with doing what you want. Otherwise, you're going to get bitter and, and, and want to like just, I don't know, give up. Yeah. Wow. By the way, I was thinking, gosh, Sam didn't even remember he had an interview with the Retire Sooner podcast. I was like, he, he, I, we, we, I was excited. I was excited. To, 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 no, I, was I, like, did, I, don't, <laughs> I did remember it. I, and I got the email from with your two producer. Alarms. <laughs> with two alarms. But what, what it is, is that I'm so distracted by other things that it's like, oh, it just crowds out. Like my mind is, it, it just thinks differently nowadays. I love this next one where you're able to speak your mind more freely when you're no longer at a big company or you're semi-retired, fake retired? Mm -hmm. Well, the idea is that if you have enough money uh, to survive and live the life that you want, 
you don't have to deal with any BS anymore, right? Mm -hmm. If your colleague is uh, needling you or abusing you, or if your manager is favoritizing someone else, you can just speak up and say, hey, what's up? Why, why are you doing that to me? If someone, you know, offends you, you can just offend them right back. There's no, there's no consequence. I mean, it is pretty amazing to be able to say and do what you want. And obviously you want to be a good citizen, right? But if sure. someone wants to come at me, I'm just like, okay, that's cool. Or I can come at them back and I have this platform and then we can just, I guess we can go to war. <laughs> but it doesn't yeah. really matter to me because I'm able to provide for my family and nobody is dictating my future. You know, when it comes to speaking more freely and, I, and you have so many visitors to your site and you probably get lots and lots of emails and opinions and pushback and compliments and a whole host, is that what sparked the book and the fact that you have all this interaction that's helped you create more and more content Spe mm -hmm. and, and the fact that you're able to really be fully transparent, say whatever the hell you want to say, yeah. is that been part of writing the book? Yeah, I mean, it's unbelievable all the perspectives people provide and all the news that happens every single day. It's 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 unbelievable. There's never, you know, a lonely moment in writing. There's always something new to write about, whether it's politics and something happening to your finances, tax laws, you know, the meme stock craze. It's just crazy. Like I had an accident um, in Lake Tahoe and I didn't even do it. Uh, the guys valeted my car and then I woke up the next day and they brought it around. They said, hey. Why do you have a big gash in your car? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea what's going on. And so I had to look about research uh, on car insurance and all that. So it's just it's just an endless amount of fun things to talk about. And it's real life, you know, real life dilemmas uh, is something that I tackle in my book. Again, the book by this, not that. How about the legacy as you now have mm. a couple kids? Yeah. You're starting to think more about that in general, uh, being retired early or as you call yourself, a fake retiree, what are your thoughts on legacy and what is, how, how does that change your perspective? Well, legacy is, is something interesting. I think that really starts, you know, once you hit around 40, it makes you think about your life, what you've done in your life, what you want to leave behind on this earth. And if you have children, uh, automatically they are part of your legacy, but also you want to think about teaching them the right way so they can go on and fulfill their own legacy. And it's legacy is something selfish. It's about you, frankly. And self-actualization is important. So one of the reasons why I wrote the book was because I wanted to write something that was a physical copy of something that I could share my thoughts to the world. And what kept me going writing this book was knowing that my kids would one day be able to bring it to show and tell class and say, oh, this is what my daddy does. So legacy is so important as you get older, maybe not for everybody, but it's something where I think you just want to leave the world at peace, knowing that you did something better and you left it in a better place than you first started out. For me, this is my favorite of all of these, is the thought around thinking, and maybe not everyone's favorite, but this is my favorite, thinking in terms of probabilities and, mm -hmm. not, and not absolutes. Yes. What, that really hit with me. Describe why that's so important to you and why this is one of your six lessons if you, in early retirement, probabilities as opposed to absolutes. Yeah, I encourage everyone to think in probabilities, not absolutes. And this comes from my experience as an investor. And when you know you're investing in risk assets, you also know you're going to lose money. So if you can win 51% of the time over the long term, you're going to make a lot of money and you're going to make a lot of right decisions. My encouragement to all readers of Financial Samurai and the book is to think in probabilities because if you as soon as you start thinking in absolutes, in other words, 100% probability, you're going to miss out on too many opportunities. And if you miss out on too many opportunities, you're going to look back on your life with regret having not tried. And that is the biggest thing. If you don't try on something, you're going to regret it and it's going to eat you up inside for a long time. How about the new book, Buy This, Not That? It just came out, so you, you've been forced to actually be on a schedule because you got to go out and do some <laughs> podcasts, get people to, to learn about it. It's, it's already doing very well, WSJ bestseller. Yeah. How long did it take? Did you take years and years of writing? And, and this is the other thing. I think people that write a lot, 
and I've faced this, it's like, oh, I've written so many articles and so many things. I can just kind of collect it all up and we can make it a book. And that just didn't work for me. Yeah. At least I've never found it to be that way. The book is its own medium yeah. and its own journey and its own uh, flow through. So how about for you? How long did it take and how did it come together? Well, you know, I've written over 25 articles, 2,500 articles on Financial Samurai since 2009. And the book took about two years to write um, because there are a lot of cooks in the kitchen, good cooks to make the dish better. And then it took about six months to rewrite and edit. And it was a really introspective process. And before I wrote the book, I read about 20 personal finance books to understand what worked, what didn't work. And I also realized that the best books were actually kind of thin and kind of just, it was like dessert. It scratched the, the, the surface and it made you feel good. But I don't know if it made, it taught you anything or made you, you know, more knowledgeable or, or, or act in a better way. And so I decided to take a risk and write a much more thorough book, a deeper book that not only helped people achieve financial freedom sooner based on a 70-30 decision-making framework, but I also wanted to tackle some of life's biggest dilemmas because at the end of the day, money is just a means to an end, right? We're going to face a lot of these dilemmas in life and I wanted to tackle them with some really good logic and rationale to help readers uh, gain more confidence to make better decisions. What? Give me an example. A biggest dilemma. I want to hear this. Oh, great dilemmas include um, whether to have children young in your career or later in your career, whether to send your kids to private school or public school, whether to join a startup or an established firm, whether to move to expensive New York or San Francisco for a potential job opportunity or a move to the Midwest to save money. So many dilemmas that we face um, that it's just hard. And, and as a result, it creates analysis paralysis. People just end up not doing anything. Over the years, I have had many readers come to me and say, I've had my entire Roth IRA or 401k in cash because I don't know what to do. I'm just paralyzed. And so the book by this now that helps give you the knowledge and the confidence to make a rational decision hopefully with a 70 plus percent probability, you're going to make the right one. And if you don't make the right one, it's okay. Unless you're going to die or something catastrophic happens, you're going to learn from your mistakes and make better decisions going forward. Enter the 70-30 principle. Yeah. 70-30 principle is essentially, if you believe there's a 70% chance or greater you're making the right decision, go for it while having the humility, knowing that 30% of the time you might get it wrong, but you're going to be able to learn from your mistakes and get better. Okay. So if you're in your mind, it's a coin flip 50, 50, this could work or not. Then you, that's when you say, let's shy away from it. But if it's a 70, I think this could work, but it's yeah. okay if it doesn't. Yeah. That's a really nice way to think about it. And, and that's any of these big life dilemmas, right? Children, young, not private public school. It's funny. These are all really tough ones. Like there's no right, perfect answer for private or public Yeah, startup or established city or country Yeah, to be, you know, city mouse or country mouse, either one of those. Like that's tough. That's a tough it's one. Tough. It's tough, but that's the whole idea of the book. There's a great saying. If I knew then what I know now, things would be better. So to never say that saying again, all you've got to do is read a book from someone who's been through what you might go through to learn where they went through and then learn from them. And so it's just, it's just whether you want to learn or not. And I, it, it just seems like life is very hard. It's very long and it's also very short, but there are really easy steps to be able to make your life better and easier. How about bad debt versus good debt? So What's debt your take some, on that? Uh, I mean, I think uh, debt is also on a spectrum. So bad debt is obviously consumer debt. We buy things uh, we don't need on credit card, revolving credit card debt, because we think we deserve something we don't yet deserve. It's kind of like uh, maybe the C student who believes he or she deserves an A lifestyle or the first year employee who believes he or she should go straight to the corner office. If you really think about why you have this consumer debt, which is evol revolving at a 17 to 18% interest rate, which is 5%, 6% higher than Warren Buffett's returns over the past 40, 50 For years. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, why are you in this resolve, uh, revolving credit card debt? It's probably 
something to do with some insecurity or some understanding of yourself that you need to get right. And so that type of debt is bad. But good debt is any debt that you can use to acquire some asset that has a chance to go up in value. So that one obviously is a mortgage. That's the most common type of good debt. So long as you get that mortgage and buy that house in a proper home buying ratio, which I've introduced before, I think you're going to be okay. Yeah. Can you share your home buying ratio with us? Oh, so the home buying rule is the 30-30-3 rule for home buying. So to cut to the three, three is don't buy a house more than three times your household income. Um, but I've stretched it to five times because rates were low and are still going to be low. And I think they're going to be low for a while. But that's that's at three to five times your household income. Got it. A 30% is having a 20% down payment on your home and having a 10% buffer in terms of cash or semi-liquid securities after you purchase your home. And then the other 30% is spending no more than 30% of your gross income on your mortgage, on your home. No more than 30% of your gross income. Yeah. Right. So if you make 10000 a month, try to keep it to 3000 a month on your home. Okay. So that's your payment, the three to five. And I guess to some extent, it depends on where we are in the country, but housing prices just in general for the last couple of years have gone through the roof. So you're able to stretch this a little closer to three, four, five times your household income, which gets you, which also helps you keep on that, that 30% ratio. Yeah, it does. And it's easy to lose your mind with any kind of investment, any kind of house, you know, you get really attached to it. And when you lose your mind and you lose um, those proper frameworks, sometimes you get hurt, as we saw in the global financial crisis. So I don't want people to get hurt. I want people to think rationally. Obviously, if your income is on an upward trajectory, you know, you're 30 years old, you just got promoted. You think your income is going to be 50 percent, 100 percent higher in three years. You can stretch that. But you've Mm got to have this kind of framework in mind so that you don't go overboard. Speaking of, and we ask you kind of more of a current events question, just your perspective, your thoughts, the fact that housing is so expensive. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of reasons why houses are more expensive. You know, one of them, I think, is that the utility of a home has gone up as yeah. it becomes more of an office as well. And do you think that was a one-time bump up because of the unlocking of virtual? Or do you think we're in a real estate bubble Uh, Mm -hmm. the common question concern I get is like, Hey, I'd love to sell my house. It's worth so much more Mm -hmm. than I paid, but then what am I going to do? I have to go do the same. I have to spend more money than I would otherwise want to somewhere else to buy another house. Cause all, almost all real estate is higher. What is your thought on that? So that question that you often receive is one of the core principles I have in the book for real estate. And that is your only long real estate if you own more than one property, more than your primary residence, your neutral real estate, when you only own your primary residence, you go up and down with the market and your short real estate when you're a renter, because you are a price taker of ever rising rents and property prices. And so just like how you wouldn't short the S&P 500 long term, you probably don't want to short the housing market long term by renting. Yes, you get a place to stay, but you don't have any optionality in building wealth through real estate. And so in terms of your specific question on what about the real estate market today, I believe the real estate market will fade over the next 12 months. I think January, February 2022 was a high. And I think you can buy real estate. You should look to buy real estate at about a 5 to 10% discount from the early 2022 highs because real estate is generally a lagging sector to the stock market. So it's interesting right now, right? Because the S&P 500 went down about 21% in the first half of 2022, and now it's gained back about half. So we don't know exactly what's going to happen, but we do see inflation rolling over in July. We got an 8.5% print. And so we are seeing the 10-year bond yield roll over from a high of about 3.5% to 2.85%, which means the average 30-year fixed rate has gone from about a 6% high to now back down to about a 5% level. And so you're probably going to see incremental demand come back, but I would be very patient and look for deals because inventory is coming. It is here and you're going to be able to get better deals, five to 10%. Where do you think inventory is coming from? So I think inventory is generally stable. But what I think the reason why inventory is higher is because demand is lower, because people are taking a wait and see approach. 
in general, inventory is relatively like this, but it's demand that has a higher volatility. Yeah. One thing um, I think people should be aware of, there's two things uh, for real estate investors. One, I think work from home is going to be here for the rest of our lives. We've accepted it. We've gone through two and a half years. Technology is only going to get better. And that's what's going to happen. So demographic shifts are going to go towards lower cost areas of the country. So you want to be investing in the heartland and the sunbelt because there is no reason why San Francisco has to be a monopoly city on the tech sector or VC sector. Yeah. And then two, this is really important that nobody really talks about, is that foreign investors are coming again. So the pandemic has been bad for a lot of reasons, but it has been good in throttling wealthy foreign investors from coming to America and buying up our property. So once the pandemic opens, the borders open, you're going to probably see over $100 billion in foreign real estate demand come to the coast first and then slowly, gradually move inward. Because America, no matter all of our problems, we have outperformed 95 plus percent of countries in terms of the stock market, in terms of lifestyle, in terms of being able to get access to vaccines and less corruption. So if you think about it, if you're a wealthy investor, you're going to want to diversify your assets to the countries that outperform the most. And America is in the top tier. I love that perspective. I really do. And so you think that we're going to see a lot more foreign investment coming here yeah. to the United States. So the demand curve so has shifted, shifted to the right and it's going to shift more to the right as foreign investors come and buy property. I looked at the data before the pandemic. It was 100 to $120 billion in foreign real estate demand. And then the pandemic hit, it throttled down to about $30 billion. So that is pent up demand of about $250 billion in foreign real estate demand on top of the regular demand that would have you know come so i would be careful and i would try to buy your piece of america now before the <laughs> foreigners come I, I really would buy america now <laughs> it's going to be my new bumper sticker last couple of things here i do a lot of research around the habits that tie happy retirees together relative to unhappy Okay. Financial habits, lifestyle habits, social habits, yeah, and uh, marriage, family, et cetera, consumer habits. And that's what I've done for the better, better part of 10 years now. One of the financial categories is to, as the number of different, not necessarily the amount, but the number of different income streams increases, two, three, mm -hmm. four, five different ways we have income or passive income in retirement, the higher levels of happiness we tend to see. Mm. You could call that more peace of mind, more diversification, multiple streams of income, give you a greater peace of mind. Would you rather get one paycheck for 10,000 a month or 10 $1,000 paychecks? There's more comfort in the 10 1,000s. Okay. So it's very positive as a retiree to have multiple income streams. How do you think about multiple income streams and how does that relate back to, to real estate for you? Because that's a big part of what you do. How can we build that? Well, I advise following some type of net worth, net worth asset allocation framework. My net worth asset allocation framework changes by age, and it's in the book. This goes through a detail. But mine current is 50% real estate, 30% equities, so stocks, about 10% municipal bonds, 5% risk-free, and the rest in private investments, venture debt, venture capital. And sure... The more money soldiers I have working for me, fighting for me, the more comfortable I feel. Because if one guy goes down, there are other money soldiers there, i.e. passive income streams to keep me afloat. And I've thought about this from an investment point of view where I love dividend income because you just don't have to do anything. But I don't like the yields because they're quite low. So I love rental income because the yields are quite high. But I don't love the work it requires to do maintenance, to fix things and so forth. I love online real estate because it has higher yields and there's no need for you to do anything. So that's why I've been putting more of my money. And I do like What do you mean by bonds. online yields? What do you mean by online meals? So it's so online real estate. So real est private real estate syndication yields. deals. I think I said meals, online meals, because I must I order meals on <laughs> Yeah. Uh, online, uh, online, uh, real estate. So private real estate, real estate syndication deals where a sponsor, 
buys a property, refurbishes it, you know, increases occupancy, sells it for a profit. I like that. I like real estate in general because it's a tangible asset that doesn't go down 35% overnight because, you know, it missed quarterly earnings by 5%, right? And the yields are higher. And so that is like one portion of it, um, the passive, traditional passive investments. The other portion is actually online investments. So what do I mean by that? For example, financial samurai can be considered an, an online investment. It can generate passive revenue, not, not passive, actually. You know, these podcasts don't speak themselves. The articles don't write themselves, but they're enjoyable. So they ge- it ge- generates revenue. It can be sold and you can do things like, uh, you know, you can write a book and maybe if it does well enough, it might earn royalties. So you just want to keep on creating, keep on making progress in retirement because it's actually really fun. Yeah, I love how you call them the money soldiers. How about as we as we wrap here today, what is your just general overview of spending? Your spending rules. My spending rules, man. So I do have this one non-spending rule, which is if the amount of money you're saving each month doesn't hurt, you're not saving enough. And the idea okay. behind that is to say, look, do you really want to wing it with your finances? Because if you wing it and if you're not purposeful, you're going to wake up 10 years from now and wonder where all your money went. And I don't want that to happen to you. So that is the opposite of the spending rule. In terms of the spending rule, you got to spend money on the things that you value. That's it. Spend on quality. Spend on the things you value. You don't have to spend on lots of stuff and hoarding things. The things you value, you know, is that one pair of jeans that you wear over and over again or that baseball glove that you're just going to use over and over again forever and that starts smelling great. You know, focus on that quality because that quality is going to last you and be more valuable to you for a longer period of time. I feel like you've done that with a tennis racket. <laughs> well, tennis rackets, it's good for about three years, but then it starts losing its pop. So if you want to stay competitive, you probably want to get a new tennis racket. Well, I think of this as PPWs, price per wares. Blue, I don't know of anything that's a better, lower PPW than, than a good pair of blue jeans. Yeah. And some people, they end up getting 10 blue jeans and spending $200 on each blue jeans, and then they end up not wearing a single one. And it's only one out of 10. (laughs) Exactly. So as we kind of wrap here today, uh, you've got the book that just came out, what, in July? So it just came out. Mm -hmm. Uh, Buy This, Not That, How to Spend Your Way to Wealth and Freedom. Mm -hmm. And where else can people find you? And do you do online courses? Are you thinking about doing that? Is it mostly through writing? How do we get more of Sam Dogan? (laughs) You know, it's funny. They always say, you know, you write a book uh, not to make money. And I totally believe that. Don't get rich if you want (laughs) to. Don't write a book if you want to get rich. Um, I don't plan to do any courses. I just don't want to focus on spending my time trying to make money. I want to focus my time on being with my kids and just writing about the random things that pop up in life and in the economy on Financial Samurai. So just go to financialsamurai.com. Everything is free. If you want to subscribe to my free newsletter, you can go to financialsamurai.com forward slash news. I put one out every week recapping the most interesting things of the week. My thoughts on the economy, stock market, real estate market, whatever it is. And it's from a perspective from someone who worked in finance who actually doesn't have a day job and is trying to figure things out as well. And I think people enjoy it. And then finally, um, I guess you can go on Twitter. I don't spend much time on Twitter. It's at Financial Samurai without an I because there's not enough character spaces that I discovered back in 2009. And then uh, you can buy the book, buy the book, financialsamurai.com forward slash BTNT. By the way, where are you doing that fulfillment on your own or is it obviously you're using Amazon or how are you selling the book mostly? So it's everywhere, right? It's with Portfolio Penguin Random House. Penguin Random House is the largest publisher. Portfolio is a business imprint. So it's just everywhere, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles. Bookstores, it's in Barnes & Noble's bookstores for sure, but the indie bookstores are really interesting. Um, Everyone has a different flavor, and so you want to call ahead and see if it's available before you go down and try to buy it. Yeah, I love Amazon, and I think that almost all my, you know, not all, but 75, 80% of my book sales has been through Amazon, but they have such control over the price. I'll notice they'll put the price up and book sales will go down. Then they'll randomly lower the price for a week or so and book sales go up. And I just wish they were always getting more competitive, but they're not. I wish I could control the price, but Amazon controls half the world. So it's so interesting, right? Because Amazon probably cuts the price to lure buyers in 
And then hopefully if it's like a good buyer who's like wealthy, they'll go and buy something else on Amazon and try to make a margin, a profit margin on some other product. And so as a shareholder of Amazon for the past, I don't know, 10, 11 years, it's very smart. They're dominating. But it also, you know, it's a bummer for mom and pop retail stores who are trying to sell it at retail. So, you know, life is competitive. It's always competitive. And so I hope everybody can figure out a way to get their finances right. Because once you get your finances right, you can take more risks and you can do things that, you know, you just couldn't feel like you could do in the past. Well, listen, this is so good and so fun. And this was uh, everything I hoped it would be to be able to talk with you, Sam. Again, I've been reading your work for many, many years and I wish you continued success with everything. I hope you sell a million copies of Buy This, Not That. I think <laughs> hopefully you. our audience will go to Amazon right now and pick up a copy and also sign up for your newsletter. So it's, it's you just have, I love your perspective. I think it's a wonderful perspective. I think it's a, as about as objective as you can get in the financial industry. So just keep up the awesome work, man. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. And I'm glad I had the alarm on 10 minutes before because I hate being late. Being late is like my biggest pet peeve. So that was the thing. I'm glad awesome. I wasn't late and I'm honored that you had me on. Hey, y'all. This is Mallory with the Retire Sooner team. Please be sure to rate and subscribe to this podcast and share it with a friend. If you have any questions, you can find us at westmoss.com. That's W-E-S-M-O-S-S.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and YouTube. You'll find us under the handle Retire Sooner Podcast. And now for our show's disclosure. This podcast is provided to you as a resource for informational purposes only and is not to be viewed as investment advice or recommendations. This information is being presented without consideration of the investment objectives, risk tolerance, or financial circumstances of any specific investor and might not be suitable for all investors. It is not intended to and should not form a primary basis for any investment decision that you may make. Always consult your own legal, tax, or investment advisor before making any investment or financial planning considerations. Please refer to the full disclosure in the podcast description for any additional information.